and welcome to Say Hi to the Future, a podcast aimed at highlighting the human side of ingenuity, clever, inventive, and original thinking. My name is Ken Tenser, CEO of SpiderWorks, a leading business consultancy for mid-market organizations and entrepreneurs globally. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. With me today is Frank Spencer, founder and creative director at Kedge and co-founder, lead instructor at The Future School. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the show. Well, Frank Spencer, welcome to Say Hi to the Future. Always great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to get started. Because so you, you work in the area of strategic foresight. What is strategic foresight? Yes, I do. I've been actually working in the field of strategic foresight or futures thinking or future studies or futurism, whatever name you want to give it, that's fine, um, for the better part of two decades. Well, actually a little bit longer than two decades. And uh, we'll just leave, we'll say 20 plus years and we'll just leave you plus at, you know, an unknown. So you, I don't have to give my age away, but strategic foresight is actually a old discipline. It's been around for a hundred plus years. Um, I think it's newer in the Western world. When I say newer, you know, maybe the last 60 years and uh, really uh, a lot older in, in Europe and Asia. Um, and uh, foresight basically is a discipline that helps organizations and governments and initiatives and entities to um, really embrace uncertainty, to look past the linear uh, pathways that we try to build for our organizations, to insulate them and say, that's not reality. That's not the way things really work. The way things really work is the world is complex and it's volatile and it's uncertain and it's ambiguous. And the more that we actually embrace that or learn to live with that, the more that we can actually leverage that for opportunities. Um, and of course, there's the whole risk avoidance piece, but you'll find that uh, at the Future School and at Kedge, which is the uh, mothership, uh, the consulting firm here, we tend to think more transformational. It certainly is looking at, you know, what do we do when there are, you know, negative worlds ahead? What do we do when there's positive worlds ahead and everything in between? And so foresight really is an amazing discipline. Um, we, we like to call it a funnel discipline because it takes in anthropology and psychology and sociology and uh, technology and all of those things that would really be important to humanity uh, in general, looking to the future and really um, uh, setting pathways towards that future. Um, we like to say, and I'll end uh, that, that, that explanation by just saying, we love to say the future's thinking and foresight really isn't about the future. And that always shocks people. Hmm. Um, it's really about today because the way we think right. about the future directly impacts the actions we're taking today, whether consciously or unconsciously. And so foresight moves that to the conscious and says that we need to be purposeful and intentional about our responsibility, our moral and ethical responsibility to the future for everyone that's alive today and those who are yet to come. So, so as you're describing it, I mean, I can't help thinking I've also, also like you, I, I will say I've worked for over 20 years and I'll cut a few decades out of that, but the future's really changed. I mean, Hey, uh, you know, I started and sorry, but with punch cards and computers, the future took a little while to unravel, to unfold itself. And now, you know, as we've seen with the pandemic over 30 days, you know, seven, eight billion people on Earth, we all went through the same thing. How do you deal with that incredible change of, of pace that, well, that we're all going through? Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Because with the pandemic, 
everybody suddenly has been super interested in what the future might hold. It's changing the way we work. It's changing what the word organization will mean in the next year, three years, five years, 10 years. It's uh, changing transportation. It's changing whether we want to touch things or not. Um, and, you know, how we go out in public and, and we interact and what cities will look like. And you're right, that pace of change just seemed to come overnight. Um, the reality is that foresight always looks at the possibility of those things. Um, of course, scenario building is a tool that is not necessarily unique only to foresight, but certainly within foresight, um, uh, futures professionals have been building scenarios, multiple scenarios for a long time. And those scenarios are supposed to include not just plausible um, and probable and possible worlds, but also provocative and as uh, Joseph Voros, who created the cone of possibilities, would say preposterous futures. Um, it's important to look at those things, too, because when we're just taken unaware by the uh, of these things, it means we weren't really thinking intentionally about the future. Um, you mentioned COVID. It's a great example. Um, was it a wild card? Was it a black swan or a discontinuity? Um, when the first time that the SARS-CoV-2 virus was ever identified was in 2007, and here we are in 2020 when it first appeared. That was 13 years later. Right. So the fact that we didn't do anything about it doesn't mean that we didn't know about it. And um, one of our colleagues in the field likes to call that a black elephant. So, you know, we know black swans. Right. Right. Um, but the black elephant is sort of a play on two things, the elephant in the room and the black swan. And leaders love to say, oh, my gosh, we were taken by surprise by this thing when really it was the elephant in the room all along. We're like there's a pandemic and administration made a pandemic plan and then it got scrapped. And so we were partially ready for these things, but we don't take them serious until they come to us. So that's what foresight really does. It says, look, those pace of change, quick pace of change things, they're knocking at your door all the time, all the time. Yeah. And so uh, foresight says you better be ready for them at all the time. And is your strategy future ready and future empowered? Is your innovation future ready and empowered? Is your organizational development and transformation future ready and empowered? And when we place that at the top of the funnel instead of the bottom of the funnel, which we love to do because we all have decisions to make every day and we're all putting out fires and we're all running a million miles an hour, but we need to really flip that in our organizations and say that pace of change is always right there. It's right at your shoulder. And, um, and that's how we really face it is we, we, we think that way we need to, we need to flip yeah. and shift our mindsets to think well, I, that know, that's normal. Right. Yeah. And, and Frank, I think that that is, that is just bang on what you just said. We, cause you're talking about organizations and, and, and how groups or teams work and, and absolutely. Um, then you talked about we and our mindsets and actually I'm my, I'm <laughs> just for fun. I'm doing my doctorate in my fifties. Um, and it's on human ingenuity, clever inventive, original thinking. Wow. And it's first cousin abductive reasoning. And we're taught about deductive or inductive and, you know, top down reasoning or bottom up reasoning. Okay. Abductive is, is what a jurist does. What um, right. a medical professional paramedic is, is, is you have to make the best decisions with what you have at hand because somebody might not be conscious. They might not be able to give you an answer, to tell you what happened. So you have to bring it together. Right. And to me, and you mentioned it before, ambiguity, we haven't been raised to be comfortable <laughs> with ambiguity, with the unknown. And to me, this is the number one thing that we all need to be, to be brilliant. Well, futurists to be better brilliant individuals. 
That's exactly right. You nailed it. And uh, we love to say that if everybody thought this way, the world would be a better place. Uh, so based on what you just said, uh, that's my response to that. Um, you, you know, the reality is that, um, you could call this a failure of imagination or a failure of imagination literacy. Um, but this is a skill set that everybody needs. It doesn't matter what profession they're in. We all need to really think this way. And so there are reasons that we won't go into in a 30 minute podcast, why we've gotten stuck in these systems. I think Wingrow and Graber do a great job in their new book, you know, Dawn of Everything, talking about, you know, the way, why do we get stuck where we are today in these linear mechanical systems that don't really operate as the world does in a more organic and natural way. But the truth of the matter is we should be thinking this way. And so is it a failure right. on our part to have taught this kind of way? And this is really a critical skill for all people going forward and a skill that needs to be developed. So it's a skill set, yes, but I think it's something that we draw out of ourselves as a natural trait. And it's one of the things that we love to teach is that this is not something I'm just imparting to you. I need to draw the future out of you because it's sitting there dormant, waiting to be empowered um, to really change the way that we think about systems and about the world and not be stuck in, the, in these surprises that, that you know, are waiting just around the corner. But the, the other thing I found that, that I speak a lot about is that we're taught to think across three horizons. I mean, there's hindsight, there's oversight, there's foresight. Yeah. We're only taught to act across two. We That's can right. be reactive. We yeah. can be proactive. But proactive is, okay, I'm building a plant. We got to schedule an inspection. I like to talk about being preactive, which to me is foresight. That's and right. what is going to happen in year three, five? It goes to your scenario planning. What's going to happen in year three, five right. down the road? And again, if you're not taught, if you're taught to think across three, but only act across two, boy, you're, you're behind the eight ball. In so many ways. And uh, there's a million you know, directions that could go bouncing off the idea that you just gave there. But I can't help but think that when we think about the future, we like to relegate it to time because I woke up in the morning at, you know, seven o'clock, I get ready by eight o'clock. I get my car by eight 30. I'm to work by nine. You know, you get the, you get the idea. Everything's on a schedule all day long. And so time. And so we think about time, we can relate to time in the past and the present, but we have a harder time relating to time in the future. And definitely the past is a space in some ways. It's like this thing happened, this event happened, but we are not as used to thinking about the future as a space. And that would really be a much more powerful way to look at it, right? It's not just a, a faraway time. It's a space that people will inhabit. And hopefully, and cross my finger, there's trees there and rivers and cities <laughs> and things happening there, right? And so we need to think about the future more as a space than a time. But I actually think there's a third way based exactly on what you just said that's even better than spatio-temporal, and that's experiencing. Um, the poet Ma Maria Rilke said, the future enters into us or in order to work itself in us before it manifests itself through us. And so it's not just time and space, it's experience. And if we learn to experience the future as an internal operation that then is co-created by us individually and collectively, um, yeah, then we stop only acting on two times. We start acting on the third because that becomes just as much of an experience as the past or present ever was. That, that's, I love that. And I love that, that quote as well. And in it, 
it seems to play into something else that, that I, I read and you speak to. Lifelong learning, unlearning, and relearning. I'm tired just asking or mentioning that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does. It sounds like a never-ending journey, you know, cradle to, cradle to grave, I guess. So, But the, matter, the truth of the matter is I think it is much more liberating because the way that we approach education today, it's rote memory and you know, teaching to testing and, um, you know, uh, uh, Sir Ken Robinson, you know, uh, before he passed away, was famous for saying um, that we the kids are born creative. All humans are born creative. And then we send them to school (laughs) and we teach it out of them. Um, And so really that learning, unlearning and relearning is about lifelong creativity. And that's a much more natural way to learn. Um, There's this phrase that we often teach people when we're doing our trainings. Um, I can't remember who came up with it, but it may have been uh, Edie Wiener or maybe it was Alvin Toffler that you just quoted or or, or one of the people in the features field. But they are famous for talking about educated incapacity and educated incapacity is knowing so much about what you know with your master's and your doctorate and my master's degree. And those things are important things to know that we're the last to know what's really changing because we have educated incapacity or the illusion of certainty. Um, And so that's why we can hold on to our vision. We should hold on to our vision, but we need in this environment, really in any environment to be ready to let go of our strategy in a moment's notice vision, important strategy shifting. And that means that we have to also let go of some of the knowledge we have to accept new knowledge coming in and new ways of seeing things, multiple ways of knowing indigenous ways of knowing transrational ways of knowing. We're so used to rationality that we forgot that we really live in a transrational world. One person's uh, uh, global truth, uh, a cosmic truth is not another person's cosmic truth. And so really thinking transrationally, seeing different ways of knowing, Knowing is a skill set. And when we think that way, then we're enabled to inhabit unlearning and relearning. And that's a lifelong journey. And that's really what creativity is all about. And creativity and foresight in that sense are, you know, kissing cousins. They're linked together. And when you say that, when they say they link together, one of the conversations that I've had lately is, is I mean, everyone's having is education versus learning. And, and I think that, you know, to your point about them being kissing cousins to, to me education is is if you if you will the rational framework this is what we go through our curriculum our rubrics but yeah. learning is the experiential part of how we apply the education and and i think that today learning and continue not even continuous learning minute to minute learning we need we need to really look at that education framework to allow for minute to minute learning you know to to survive we absolutely do. And, and, and another thing that has been happening for a long time, some of it has been, um, you know, articles about how education is changing or futures thoughts about that. And some of it hasn't manifested yet. And some of it has. And some of it's happening by, behind the scenes that people don't realize yet is that we're seeing a big shift in the way we educate or think about education in general. And so universities have been behind the eight ball, as you said earlier, you know, trying to play catch up. And right. we see all these articles today about credentials and micro credentialing and certifications being really the future of education. And that's really that stacking of uh, learning rather than just I there's this, you know, I go to school for 12 years and then maybe another four years and then maybe another two or eight years if I'm crazy enough to do that. Um, but, uh, and then it's over. 
Um, but that can't be the way it is. And so if we start from kindergarten all the way through and really think about this stacking of learning or sub stacking of learning, I think it's a much more productive way um, to unleash the beast, so to speak, of innovation and creativity, which our world so greatly needs in the face of climate change and partisan politics and nationalism and all the stuff that's going on right now that we really need quick answers to that are long term generational cathedral thinking uh, issues that we need to address right now. So how does your firm that you co-founded is Kedge. So tell us a bit about your firm, but tell us a bit about Kedge because Kedge is, is an act. It is a, it is a purposeful act to move forward. So let's start with a little bit about that and how you, how it all came to be for you. Sure. Absolutely. I'm glad you asked. Um, I love to tell that story. Kedge is a smaller anchor on a, on a sailing vessel. And so you have these big masted ships, you know, you could imagine you're almost imagining mutiny on the bounty or something. And, um, and uh, when there was no wind at sea and those sails were of no use, this mm -hmm. is actually where the phrase stir crazy comes from, because sometimes they would be stuck at a certain position at sea for days and they would go stir crazy. And so um, what they would do is they would take the smaller anchor, still a rather big anchor, but not, the big one that they keep at the bottom of the ship. That, right. that would be a terrible name for a foresight firm. Anchor, we keep you where you are. <laughs> um, the kedge was an anchor that they would put in a rowboat. And they would send the, the newer sailors out. You know, you want, don't want to get rid of, you know, somebody who's got a lot of institutional knowledge. And they put them in the rowboat and send them out. And they might go out a, a mile from the boat with a very long, mile-long rope that they kept in the bottom of the boat. And they would drop that kedge. And everybody that was on the ship would pull, pull themselves in the direction of the kedge. And they might do this repeatedly until they moored or the wind came back and they were going in the direction they wanted to. And so kedging, a verb, is the act of pulling myself to where I want to go, no matter what the condition is. And to, you know, uh, navigate these bad lands or to um, uh, navigate through the threats or navigate towards the opportunities and get to those places that we want to go. So that's what Kedge was really founded on about 12 years ago now. Um, and uh, before that time, I worked for several different foresight firms and decided like an insane person that I was going to start my own company. Ken, you probably understand um, that, but I thank did. goodness for your success. Hence the and, nervous laughter. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The life of the entrepreneur it never stops, right? And uh, so here we are 12 years later with lots of success. Success, and I'm very thankful for that. But it's because we have really promoted this idea of helping organizations and governments and individuals, entrepreneurs, startups to really catch themselves, to really pull themselves to the future. Because we always like to say that the future exists across a spectrum. And on right. one end of that spectrum is the push of the future. And that is those trends and the competitive intelligence and the consumer insights and the business intelligence that a lot of companies say like, oh, Foresight, you're a trend company. No, not really. There's a lot more to it than just trends. Um, but uh, that's where those trends are pushing us, whether we want to be pushed or not on that push yes. in the future. And that's important to us as foresight professionals. We need to know those trends, but it's just the starting place. The other end of the spectrum is the pull of the future. And that's that kedging, right? We're pulling ourselves to our aspirational, our preferred, our desired futures. And I've been doing this for so long now, and I know other foresight professionals can tell you the same thing, that when you engage foresight in an intentional and actionable and practical way, you find out not only can you pull yourself in 
right direction, but you start pulling the future to yourself. And what I mean by that is that it happens faster than you thought it would. So we have an individual and especially collective and a cooperative co-creative ability to uh, pull the emerging future to ourselves to anticipate um, and to perceive that emergence and then pull it to ourselves. And it's a beautiful thing to watch it happen. But thanks for thanks for sharing your story. And it's it's wonderful that you've chosen a name that's that's so figurative as well. And, and we talked a little bit about being an entrepreneur. You can be an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur. I don't care what it is today. Yeah. You know, everybody wants to know the top three things you need to succeed and top three things to if we really knew that, <laughs> we would have all retired before we started working. Yeah. What you're pointing out, and, and yes, we, we kid about it as entrepreneurs, is that there's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of trial. And sometimes you don't know the exact direction you're going in. There's not the wind at your back. And you've got to create that passion, that resilience, and that direction. So wonderful name. And thank you for that story. Oh, thank you so much for letting me share. Yeah, it's uh, it's really important, I think, to um, understand that that hard work is what really goes into all that. And that's a part of futures, too. And right. that's why we don't want to ever, you know, futures, foresight professionals, whatever you want to call them, they're not predicting the future. And so if I could predict or I could just get the three answers from you, <laughs> like you said, we would have solved all this a long time ago. It's much like data. If data, climate data was convincing people or it was enough, then we would have changed our path by now. Story eats data for lunch all the time, right? Right. right. And the reason I add that in is because it really is this ongoing story. And so it's not enough for us to, um, you know, just think that we're going to, you know, know a couple of uh, um, ways of predicting or forecasting. We really in foresight have to think about multiple stories and mapping is more important than predicting and uh, that really relates to your startup and your entrepreneurs, your entrepreneurs. We need to be adaptive, resilient, and transformative. And those are really the three sort of siloed, which aren't really siloed, right, <laughs> leadership right. traits that you, know, you might be able to point to in foresight. Um, and those are the skills that are needed. And they're not you know, just uh, checks and boxes and bullet points and, and easy ways forward. It's, it's the work that has to be put in. So you're so right, Ken. Well, and you nail something else too when you talk about data. And what I talk about a lot is we get so focused on big data and look, it's important, but big data can tell you that, well, I don't know, a million people are crossing from east to west to this block every day or every week. It's, it's the thick data that tells you why they're there. Are they happy? Are they unhappy? Is there dissonant? Like, so I, I don't think that People always understand that, you know, big data is great, but the, the emotional human side or thick data to me is a futurist or an innovator is, is, is the rich part of data. That's exactly right. And thank you, Trisha Wang, for this moniker of thick data. And yeah. then, you know, one of my favorite people, Nora Bateson, who really now today talks about uh, um, warm data. And she's writing a book on warm data right now. And it's really looking at those, um, as uh, uh, Benita Roy says, those complex potential states. Um, and I think that that's what you're talking about, right? Or as, you know, comp uh, uh, as the theory of complex uh, uh, responsive processes goes to, when you put one and one together, you don't get two. Um, there's this emergent space in the middle. And so data 
gives you all of that top level stuff. And really it doesn't even tell you what's really happening or or what's going on. So like you said, it's important. I'm not denying that at all, but it's really that thick data. It's the human centered design and the anthropology and the ethnography and all of this that boils down to something even, you know, more rich, which is foresight that really tells us the real story past, present and future. And so you couldn't be more right. And I hope we see more and more people really leaning away from just simply thinking that the numbers are going to get them there and leaning more into the thick data and the warm data. Those are such important parts of really building those stories of the future. And, and you talk about foresight. You also talked about natural foresight. And I'm wondering if you can tell us what, what that is, what role it plays. Oh, I'm so excited that you asked me that. Um, We developed uh, the idea of natural foresight over a decade ago, and um, we built a framework around it. And there's lots of frameworks in the field of foresight, and they're all useful. Um, We're super excited, of course, about natural foresight because one, we created it. (laughs) And two, um, because it really was created around exactly what we just talked about, around complex adaptive systems, complex responsive processes, and complex potential states. And so instead of just being five steps or four steps or seven steps, it's really based on the figure eight, the panarchy. And uh, so uh, Hollings and Gunderson's work around the panarchy to begin with, but even deeper than that, and looking about a pathway, a natural and organic approach, um, growth cycles and growth curves to foresight. So when you first see the natural foresight model, which is discover, explore, map and create, and it looks like it's in a quadrant, that's great because it's intuitive and it looks like steps are are phases. And that's how we want people to approach it because uh, I don't want them to be scared of it when they first get there. But the great thing about natural foresight, which is a very organic approach to foresight instead of a mechanical or linear stepwise approach, because, and let me take an interlude there, isn't it sort of strange that foresight is supposed to be a nonlinear and complex approach to thinking mindsets and then action. And then we back up and we try to apply mechanical and linear and step processes to it. I know we do the best we can, but foresight, if there's any um, discipline that should be evolving, should be the future thinking and foresight, right? And so um, we're really happy about natural foresight because companies all over the world now are using natural foresight because it uh, provides them a way to grow in their foresight efforts so that at first they're like, I'm just getting my feet wet. It steps, it's phases. And then as they get into it, they realize, oh no, it's nested panarchies. And, and I can look at the, the, the future in these nested panarchies from government to society down to more individual things like my organization. And I can weigh them upon one another. And now I can discover complex potential states. Uh, a lot of we, what we talked about a few minutes ago, I know that, you know, what I'm saying is just a lot of, it sounds jargony, but it's really about discovering and growing with complexity as you grow in your foresight practice. So we uh, wrote a 115 page guidebook to the natural foresight framework uh, several years ago. And now everybody that comes to training and all of our clients get it. And you can download it for free on our website too, and learn all about natural foresight. But one last thing that I would say about that is that it's really about looking things from a more natural point of view. And I mentioned this earlier and um, I didn't really give context for it, but this is the better context that um, we believe that foresight is a natural human trait. Um, so we've written about that a good bit. And there's articles you can find that we've written about that. It's not just a skill that we made. That is something that, you know, humans and organizations uh, have a tendency to want to try to, 
shy away from because we do in the mechanical approach. But I believe naturally and organically, we want to let the future out of us. And so instead of just saying, I'm going to part the future to you, I think it's more important to say, how do we draw the future out of everybody? How do we democratize the future? And that's what natural foresight is really saying at the surface is foresight is a natural process. And then there's a whole framework built around it to actually let you to dive, uh, allow you to dive into that. As you describe that and you talk about democratizing the future, I have to say, I think you're at the perfect point in history to do that. And, and what I mean is, look, I have three kids in their mid-20s, people knock millennials, blah, blah, blah. Here's what I see with millennials, that they grew up speaking to anybody, anywhere in the world, any time of day about any topic. They, they are creating their own future in, in a way that we couldn't. It's not that we necessarily didn't want to, but I missed the internet at 16. What can I tell you? That's I right. couldn't have these conversations. I had to go and look at microfiche in the library to find things. So I, I think as you describe it, you really are at a perfect point in history and you have a super engaged group of individuals. Yeah, right. The perfect people to receive such a perfect message. Myself and um, our creative strategist here, Ashley Bowers, um, Barbara Ferrer-Lanz and Mike Compton, who is a professor at Denison University, are all presenting together on this natural foresight and what we sometimes call holoptic foresight um, discipline at the Anticipation Conference at Arizona State University uh, this coming fall. And the reason I mentioned that is because he, they were saying just the other day in one of our planning meetings, it's like there is a world um, waiting for this message and ripe and prying for the message of democratizing the future. And you couldn't be more right. You dated us, Ken, by talking about the microfiche. <laughs> and I remember that too. But I often say to uh, clients, you know, we used to have this invention. It was crazy. I'll tell you all about it. It was on a wall. It had a cord and it had two pieces to it, but one piece hung on the other piece. And uh, could, you couldn't get very far from the two pieces because the cord was short. And this is how I talked to my girlfriend at night, you know, and that, that's the only way I could you know, talk to them or know that they were actually there. It's called a telephone. We still sometimes call, you know, this thing that we hold in our hands a phone, but it's far from a phone. It's, it does everything right. basically, but a phone <laughs> and, and, you know, the technology the social change, the demographic shifts, um, like you said, the global perspective of this generation, they're primed for this message of democratizing the future. And that means including all voices, as W.E.B. Uh, w. Dubois would say, voices that were even lost because of colonization and those indigenous voices. And we see a big movement towards recovering indigenous voices, multiple ways of knowing futures that have been buried, that need to be recovered again, futures that have yet to be imagined. All of that is coming at this time right now when we also bombarded with this message constantly every day of pessimism and all of this heavy, heavy stuff. Um, but there's so many amazing people that are rising to the call and answering the call. And um, I agree with you. My oldest child is now 30. The rest are in their 20s. And they are global thinkers. And they're a generation primed to democratize the future, that everybody should think this way. And um, it's a new way for humanity to really look at the world and uh, look at how we unfold and look at our species and look at what is, is ahead. Yeah, you know, and it's funny because on the show, I've had a lot of we call the next gen and some some students who've done 3d printing of organs but like of your organ lazarus 3d 
Um, so it's real tissue, it's real whatever, and it's created by ear scans. They were med students in their 20s. And I just say to audiences, what were you doing in your early 20s? Because I I wasn't doing that. I promise you, my thinking wasn't there. I I don't know what was wrong with us, Ken, exactly. I don't know if we just didn't have the encouragement. There was just, uh, you know, we didn't have the internet or we didn't have the global mindset, you know, but I know that we were playing sports and goofing around and having yeah. fun back in the seventies or eighties. I don't know how old you are, but you know, I gave my age away there sixties baby. Um, but yeah, I mean, gosh, I look at these guys today, my good friend, Shauna Pena, who is a medical doctor, you know, ER brain surgeon, now a trained astronaut, an actress and a, uh, a Muay Thai, you know, gold belt winner. And I'm like, I, you know, was, I was doing well if I, you know, got up and went to school every day in the morning and, and, and had my act together. So I don't know. I don't know. What, what is this generation? They get made fun of so much by memes on the Internet and all of this. And uh, I hate to tell people that are making fun of the millennial generation. They're, they're light years ahead of where we were. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Frank, as our time as our time comes to a close here, I just want to leave with one question. Um, or, or for you to talk about, you, you have Kedge, but you've also pioneered the future school. So if you can tell us about the future school and how to connect with that, that would be a wonderful way to, uh, to close our segment. Absolutely. Well, through, like I said earlier, Kedge, which is sort of the, um, the mothership, that's the consulting firm. Um, but most people nowadays actually do know us through the future school. And the reason for that is because that's really more of our public facing individuals, but also group and in-house learning ecosystem. So at first it was about training. Uh, that was eight years ago, but it's grown far beyond that now. And so we see Kedge as a continually evolving and growing learning ecosystem where we offer programs and retreats and public-facing training and foresight uh, events and uh, experiences. We have a flagship program called Foundations and Natural Foresight, as you might imagine. And we've done that in 45 countries around the world. But like everybody else over the last two plus years, we found a way to be adaptive, resilient, and transformative and to transition that online. We've had right. a longstanding grandfathered relationship with Mural from years ago when we were leading one of the um, uh, world's uh, largest internal and enterprise-wide uh, foresight unit developments, which was at the Walt Disney Company across, gosh, I don't know, 50-something, 60-something countries. And, um, and so Mural was a part of that work back then. And so we've been with them for, for a long time now. And so all of, all of our you know templates are in Mural as playmakers, and you can find all that stuff there. And the future school really is a way for us to say, well, we said seven years ago, or eight years ago now, you know, we're just not, we have this goal of democratizing the future, but we're not reaching enough people fast enough. And so we've got to have a way where people can come and they can find this training too. It's like, oh, well, great. You did this for the Walt Disney company or for General Mills or for Amtrak, but I don't work at a big organization like that. And I want to do this for myself as an individual. And so we created the future school so that people could get that kind of training, the, the tools, the methodologies, but also the mindset. And then we're uh, this fall launching our first retreat um, where we're actually going to talk about building humanity as a future staking species. So we're excited about that. Um, and now the future school has grown into the premier foresight and futures thinking uh, training learning ecosystem in the world. Uh, we have thousands of alumni around the world, probably at a, you know, 
50 or 60 or 70 countries now. And we also, uh, about three or four years ago, launched professional certification. So you and I were talking earlier about one of our mutual acquaintances, and that person happens to be on the uh, Global Foresight Advisory Council, which is a set of global um, foresight luminaries that are working in places like IBM and the Secret Service and at XPRIZE. And they are the ones who uh, accredit the professional foresight uh, certification, which is at three different levels. And so now we've seen people around the world and all walks of life and all organizations and all different governments receive their professional foresight certification. So that's been amazing. And that's a really quick and dirty of a lot of things that's happening at the future school. As a matter of fact, I'll just end by saying we declared 2022 to be what we call the year of free. And we had a crazy planning meeting sometime back and said, what if in 2022, we democratized like crazy by just giving it away for free? And we did. And so it's been amazing to watch from the beginning of this year on to now people nominate other people to come to a foundations training or an activations training or transformations training. Um, and they'll nominate them to come for free. And so that's the way it works. Somebody nominates somebody. And then we have a call with them because we have intake calls with everybody. And we have seen students from around the world come and professionals that otherwise wouldn't have known and government leaders and people at the UN, they're all attending these trainings. They've been amazing. And the cool thing about those programs, instead of doing it in-house, which I love is that you get to see a student sit next to a CEO. And that's amazing. Yes. And magic happens uh, when we do that. And so you can find all of that information and more at the futures. It's future with an S is a plural future. The futures school, two S's back to back there.com. And uh, if you want to go straight to year free, it's the future school.com backslash year free. Well, thank you, Frank. Frank Spencer, co-founder of Kedge, pioneer of the future school. Thank you so much for your time. That was amazing to be with you. And I was really happy, Ken. And uh, thank you for this. And I hope everybody enjoys. Take care. If you enjoy this episode and you want to support our show, leave us a review and join our mailing list by visiting www.spider.works. That's S-P-Y-D-E-R.works and subscribe to our channel. Leave us a comment with who we should interview next. Thank you for listening and see you all next Friday.